morning. It's nice to be with you. I've um, travelled down this evening from Oxford where I've spent the day marking essays and tutoring. I'm um, uh, involved in teaching theology and philosophy at a private college at Oxford and uh, it's exciting um, to get out into the real world occasionally and to hear questions and I hope you've brought some questions with you this evening. I'm no stranger to questions having myself um, gone on a journey asking questions 12, 13 years ago when I started to study philosophy and uh, uh, I wonder if you'd um, be interested in hearing a bit more of that journey a bit later perhaps if you are you'd be very welcome to ask me more about it but sometimes I think when people talk about their doubts I've been given this topic this evening doubting your doubts sometimes when people talk about their doubts we end up in these quite confusing conversations and um, to make matters even worse I'm a philosopher and those of you who've had the um, misfortune of meeting philosophers in the past you'll know that the description of philosophers and philosophy um, of two blind men in a dark room trying to find a black cat that isn't there is an apt <laughs> description um, so that combined with a subject that is also confusing may lead to a certain amount of confusion this evening I hope um, that's not the case I hope we can together bring some clarity to this question as we work at it together how do we handle doubt what about doubting our doubts? What are the right things to doubt? What are the wrong things to doubt? How can we think through this whole area of doubt, which is a question and an issue that's very much with us, I think, whether we find ourselves inside of the church or outside of it. So um, I wonder if, um, as you think about doubt, you feel a little bit like the guard whose job it is to stop people stealing things from the factory at the change of the shift. The workers walk past his guard house, his guard station, and um, a, a whole train of them walks by, and he carefully looks at them to try and make sure they're not stealing anything. One man walks by, and he has a wheelbarrow, and there's a pile of sawdust and wood shavings in the wheelbarrow. The guard thinks this is suspicious. He might be hiding something here. There's a sort of smile on the man's face, so I, I need to search him. I need to check that he's not doing anything untoward. So he searches the man, and he can't find anything, so he lets him go on his way. Well, eventually, um, this situation rehearses itself again and again and again, day after day after day. The same man comes with this wheelbarrow full of sawdust and wood shavings from the workshops. The guard can't find anything, but he knows he's up to something, and the, the grin on the man's face is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He thinks he spotted a nice Rolex on his wrist as well. So something's going on. There's something strange happening. So the guard eventually gets the man. He says, look, I just need to sleep. I, I haven't slept. I've been staying up night puzzling what you're up to. I know you're up to something. Just tell me what you're doing. And the man says, OK, I'll tell you. As long as you promise I won't be in any trouble, I, 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 you won't, I won't tell a soul. You'll continue to do whatever you're doing. The man says, I'll tell you. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> <laughs> Every day he'd been taking a new wheelbarrow out and making a little bit of money for himself. Here, this is my first point, is that why couldn't the guard see reality? Why couldn't the guard see the wheelbarrows being taken? Because the guard was in a context, in a, in a way of looking at the world. And in philosophy, we call that a worldview, or we might call it the subtext, the story that we're in. And the guard was in a story, the guard was in a way of looking at the world, and it sort of almost made it hard for him to see the reality of what was there. And so as we come to this, I want to just make a... Um, make a point of clarification and that is that we all come to life we all come to the questions that we ask with a worldview with an outlook on the world and every single one of us in this room has a worldview and is committed to a worldview 
It's a view that we may have absorbed unconsciously, or it's a view that we may have taken on through a series of decisions, looking at logic, looking at evidence, and building a worldview coherently together. But it's where those deep questions of life are answered, where questions of what the nature of goodness is, why there is a world, whether we can know God, whether there is a God at all. It's where those sorts of questions are answered. Mm. And my hope is that I won't actually confuse you this evening, but I'll bring some clarity and I think in philosophy we're interested in asking what is the worldview here that we're dealing with? What is the idea set? What is the system that we're thinking about? And so there is a worldview that I think that I would like to encourage you this evening to doubt. Um, In this theme of doubt, I want to first of all encourage you to take some doubt seriously. In this worldview, this way of looking at the world, like the guard had a way of looking at the world, this way of looking at the world that's very popular today, I call a very pragmatic worldview. It's the sort of just do it worldview. And essentially it says this, just live your life, just pay the mortgage, don't ask big questions of life, theology, philosophy, of meaning, of church and God and all the rest of it. Just try to live as best as you can, make a happy life, earn as much as you can, do what you can to make life bearable. Don't worry about those big questions. It's a pragmatic approach. And I would like to suggest to you that actually our adoption of this worldview, as we have adopted it, it's one of the main worldviews that people are living under at the moment, is not actually doing us any favours. Look at the moral decline of our society. Look at the situation that we have in society at the moment. Children looking at pornography in the last week. City centres filled with people who are vomiting their guts out. Marriages that are too quickly undermined and unwanted. Markets becoming more and more fragile and unstable. Not just because of economic factors, but also sometimes because of moral issues and moral choices that we make. We need to recognise that this moral decline in society has roots. And it comes from a worldview. And if we just adopt this sort of head-in-the-sand approach of, you know, like the ostrich, bearing, you know, the reality of what's going on, if we just ignore the reality of the situation that we're in, then this moral decline may continue. We may not be able to ask the fundamental questions that we need to ask. What is causing it? How can we begin to address it? What sort of a worldview is shaping our society in this way and our lives in this way? How can we begin to shape society differently? Or where can we find hope? Now, another worldview that I want to talk about... Um, was a worldview that I used to hold as well. It's a worldview that I arrived at university holding back in 2000. I was committed to this underlying story in quite a strong way. It was a story that I gradually came to doubt myself because actually at that point in my life, I was, for all intents and purposes, and in my worldview, I was an atheist. Religion for me was nonsense because it talked about God and miracles and evolution and science had won the day, hadn't it? That's what I thought to myself. Many people understood miracles to be simply impossible. And that's how I felt. Miracles are impossible. You have to make a choice between science and God. And for me, doubting my doubts when I was thinking about this evening, actually I came to reflect on this and how I'd moved through a process and moved through a, a, a sort of journey of questioning how I used to be an atheist and I began to doubt that worldview, that outlook on the world. Why did I begin to doubt it? Well, I began to doubt that science was in competition with God because I began to, as I started to study philosophy, I started to read these very, very bright philosophers who were also theists, who also believed in God. And I began to see that some of their answers actually meshed together and they could hold together their science with their thinking about the world and about God and their theology. 
And I began also to doubt that the case against miracles was as strong as I had been led to believe it was. Now, I think we've been influenced quite strongly by this view that miracles are not possible, that miracles are hard to believe, that we almost have to do this sort of jump or this leap of faith to believe in miracles. And I want to get you or help you or suggest to you that we should question this. This is, this is something we should doubt, that, that we have to believe that it's simply a jump of faith to believe in miracles. I want to suggest to you that the arguments against miracles don't work. Fundamentally, they logically don't work. The most famous argument against miracles is from David Hume, the philosopher. And he said this, he said, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can be. In other words, because miracles are a violation of the laws of nature and the laws of nature cannot be violated, miracles do not occur. That's what Hume is saying here. The problem with this is that Hume has made a couple of assumptions. First assumption that he's made is that he's assumed that the laws of nature can't be violated in order to say that they have never been violated. In order to do so, he would need to be able to say that the raising of a dead man, for example, has never occurred in any age or country. And he's unable to sustain that reasoning because it's circular. It goes round and round and round in a circle. He hasn't been in every circumstance where miracles have been claimed. And so in order to argue that they haven't happened, he would have to be in such circumstances. Yet, logically, we know that he hasn't. C.S. Lewis puts this very clearly. He says this, Now, of course, we must agree with Hume that if there is absolutely uniform experience against miracles, in other words, if they've never happened, why then they never have? Unfortunately, we know the experience against these miracles to be uniform only if we know all the reports about them are false. And we know that the reports about them to be false only if we already know that miracles have never occurred. In fact, we are arguing in a circle. And then secondly, I think that Hume's definition of miracles actually is not necessarily correct. He says that a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. It's an interruption of the laws of nature. And I think that that's perhaps mistaken. Now imagine that I have £10,000 in a bundle. Nice wadge of notes, perhaps. And I put it in a bundle. I put it in, in the drawer in my room back at home. Now imagine I go back a few hours later and I check that bundle. And I see, actually, it's missing. It's completely gone. My £10,000 is gone from the drawer. I don't say that the laws of nature have been broken. I say that the laws of the land have been broken. Now, a miracle isn't necessarily a suspension of the laws of nature. It might be better to understand a miracle as a deliberate intervention of another law or force. For example, if I take my Bible, or if I take this um, device, and if I throw this through the air at you, now, it will sail through the air, probably. It will maybe hit you in the face or the head. You'll say, ouch, and you may then um, decide that you want to keep it um, to teach me a lesson. I shouldn't go around doing things like that. Now, imagine the scenario again. I throw it, it launches out of my hand, it sails through the air on a kind of arc, and it's just about to hit you in the face, and suddenly, in midair, it stops. It just stops there. Now, what would we say? Would we say that the law of gravity has been broken? Well, no. Not necessarily. What we would immediately look for is some other force, some other invisible ledge, perhaps wires that act against the gravity that is pulling it downwards. And so I say that miracles are not impossible. And if God exists, then it's entirely possible that he can intervene and use natural laws and processes to bring about something which is utterly miraculous 
and impossible without us even pausing or violating the laws of nature themselves. But instead, God works perhaps through those processes. And so I take issue with Hume's definition of miracles as well as the logic he uses to argue against them. Now, this might give us pause for thought. And if atheism is um, a doubt, and if if we doubt atheism, then perhaps this gives us the opportunity to doubt our doubts. Now, when it comes to religion, I think we have to admit, and when we're talking about doubt, I think it's important to admit that there have been mistakes and abuses in the church. And I actually have suffered some of those mistakes in the church. But actually, <coughs> I came to reflect that Christianity is not a faith in church or a faith in a group of people behaving themselves. But it's actually faith in God and that people sometimes don't act on his behalf or don't act in line with his wishes even though they sometimes claim and we sometimes like to claim that we're doing so. So what is, what is it when we're talking about doubt? What is going on here? And particularly when we come to this subject of religious belief, how can, we, how can we handle this subject of doubt? Well, very briefly, I think that when we doubt something, we're raising a question about its nature or its quality. If you look at a strong piece of steel, like the bit of steel that Nigel installed in our kitchen um, to, when he took the wall out between the dining room and the <coughs> kitchen, when you look at that bit of steel, you look at the nature of it, it looks like a big bit of metal. We were quite excited when it was brought in because it was, it was a serious bit of metal. And it, looking at it, you, you sort of begin to reflect, well, that could take the weight of the house. You begin to trust it. Whereas if he brought in a rotten plank of wood, and I'd looked at the, the holes of the woodworm, and, and I, I sort of thought, well, you know, maybe we don't want to put in that, that in there, because I would begin to doubt the integrity of the wood. I'd be able to doubt, I'd begin to doubt, because I'm looking at the quality of it, I'm thinking it's not that great. Now, he would never do that, of course, but... <laughs> the house is still standing, thankfully. But you see that doubt and trust is related to knowing what the nature of something is. If something is in its nature weak, then we doubt sometimes. But if something is in its nature strong, then it leads to trust. Now, when it comes to doubting religion, I think that many people have big misconceptions about what it really is, about who God really is, about who Jesus really is. And these misunderstandings, perhaps sometimes bolstered by our pride, can mean that we reject something that isn't true in the first place. I think that a lot of people who are confused about what kind of God they don't believe in actually... um, when people say to me, Tom, I don't believe in this kind of God that you're talking about, and, and I get them to explain what, what they think I'm talking about, they describe an utterly different being, an utterly different circumstance than the one I imagine is real. I don't believe in the gods that they are rejecting either, I find. Now, one of the most famous doubters was a man called Anthony Flew. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or are aware of him. Anthony Flew was the greatest philosophical atheist of the last 50 years. He was like the godfather of philosophical atheism over the last 50 years. He was extraordinarily sharp. He, at the top of his game, was holding the flag for atheism for many, many years. He debated C.S. Lewis in Oxford. He wrote an essay called Theology and Falsification. It's the most widely read paper in philosophy of religion to this day. Now, a couple of years ago, Anthony Flew announced to the world that he changed his mind. He has a change of mind. He'd now come to reconsider his atheism, now believing that God does exist. Now, he didn't become a Christian, but he became a theist, a kind of theist. And in the closing chapters of a book that he published called There is a God, 
He wrote this. No other religion enjoys anything like the combination of a charismatic figure like Jesus or a first class intellectual like St. Paul. If you're wondering if God has set up a religion, and it seems to me this is the one to beat. Now, I think Anthony Flew's right. One person who stands out in 60 billion is worth a second look. H.G. Wells called him the most dominant figure in human history. Interesting, perhaps we have no record of his date of birth, yet the world's chronology is linked into that date. He never wrote a book, but more books have been written about him than anyone else in history. And the output of those books is still accelerating to this day. The nearest thing that we have to his recorded, to his, to his bibliography, has now been translated into over 2,000 different languages. He never painted a picture. He never composed any poetry or music. Yet nobody's life and teaching have ever inspired such a great output of songs, plays, poetry, films, videos, and other art films. One film based on his recorded words has been translated into over 100 different languages and has already been seen by more people than any other film in history. He never raised an army, yet millions of people have laid down their lives in his cause. Every year, thousands more do so. Except for one brief period in his childhood, his travels were limited to an area about the size of Wales. But his influence is now worldwide, and his followers constitute the largest religious grouping that the world has ever known. He had no formal education, but thousands of universities, seminaries, colleges, schools have been founded in his name. His public teaching lasted just three years. Just three years. (laughs) and was restricted to one small country. And now purpose-built satellites and the world's largest television and radio networks beam his message around the globe. He was virtually unknown outside his native country, yet in the last issue of Encyclopedia Britannica, the entry under his name runs to 30,000 words. And as well as that, he's by far the most controversial person in history. Nobody has ever attracted such adoration or opposition, devotion or criticism. Nobody's teaching has ever been so happily received or deliberately and fervently and fiercely rejected. For centuries, every recorded word that he said and did, every, every recorded word that he said and the records of his deeds have been relentlessly analysed by archaeologists, by historians, by philosophers, by all sorts of people. And right now, as you're listening to this summary of him, millions of people are studying what he said and did in their own way and trying to apply the significance of his words and his actions to their own lives. Listen to what the historian Philip Schaeff says about him. Jesus, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion, and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art and songs of praise than the whole army of great men in ancient and modern times. Lecky, in his History of European Morals, reflects on the impact of Jesus' moral teaching. He says this, The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may truly be said that the simple record of those three short years of active life have done more to regenerate and soften mankind than the dispositions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Now, as astonishing as that summary of Jesus is, It omits actually the central thing about him. It leaves out what was right at the heart of his mission, right at the centre of what he was all about. And he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God in human flesh. And then he sought to substantiate and validate and back up that claim, verifying it in lots of different ways. Claims and demonstrations of supernatural power 
surrounded him. Insights into people's lives he offered. He caused people's withered arms to grow back in plain sight. People's secrets were known. He exercised power over the natural world, calming storms. Ancient prophecies becoming filled in, in a way that was totally outside of his control, like the place of his birth and the manner of his death. As Dostoevsky puts it, the most pressing question on the problem of faith is whether man as a civilised being can believe in the divinity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for therein rests the whole of our faith. Now I think that when we look at somebody like him, when we look at what he was really like, a question comes to us, and that is, does this sort of person, does the way he interacted with people, does the way he treats people, does what he did for people, does that speak into us and does that cause us to doubt? Does, do we think this is an untrustworthy person? This is a person who is a rotten being? Or do we look at him and do we see a strength in him? Do we see a confidence in him? And do we begin to wonder whether actually there is something to this claim? How does Jesus deal with doubt? I just want to very quickly take you into um, a passage in the Bible where Jesus deals with doubt. It's in Mark chapter 9. It's a man who has a a sick son. And the son is convulsing. And the man runs up to Jesus and says, if you can do anything. So he's heard about Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. Have compassion on my son. Have compassion on our family. If you can do anything, then please help us in our situation. Jesus responds like this. He says, if you can. It's a question. If you can. Everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the father responds. And there's a change in him. He says, I do believe, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And then Jesus in front of the growing crowd of people watching this spectacle unfolding, heals the boy, makes him well. And the question I want to pose is this. Does Jesus Christ in this seem to be a person who is weak or bad in his nature? Is he the sort of person who inspires a sort of doubt and an ambiguity about himself? Or is he robust in his nature? Does he seem like a trustworthy, good person who inspires a confidence and maybe an allegiance? Now, doubt and unbelief is something that I've been through and something that I've struggled with, actually, and still find myself having excursions into, both as an atheist and as a Christian. And from time to time, um, if I'm honest with you, I've come across an explanation that begins to help me make sense of this. And I'd like to now just share that with you briefly in the hope that you might find it useful as well. Now, if I've been clear up to this point, my hope is that now I will really confuse you and uh, uh, will do my job as a philosopher properly. Well, part of what I see in this story is a man who has great need, a man who's a son who's sick. He has some doubts because the way he expresses his question indicates that he's not entirely sure, is he, that Jesus can do it? If you can, he says. Please help us. If you can help us, please. And I think by the end of this conversation, he's learnt something. He's, we're looking into this sort of window of the story, and the man ends up asking two questions. He's first of all asking the question, not just can you heal my son, but also can you help me with my doubts? Can you help me with my lack of confidence? Can you help me with where I am? And the man discovers that he's asking another question as Jesus responds to him. If I can. Now, the man doesn't realise it until he goes to interact with Jesus that he's asking this hidden question about his doubts. But it's there and Jesus brings it into the light, which is what he tends to do when people interact with him. And I think I find as well that when we interact with Jesus, when we read about him, when we, um, when we read these sorts of stories and we study them, we see he not, just, he not just 
confronts our questions sometimes, but sometimes he also gives us other questions and throws questions back at us. We end with questions sometimes that we weren't expecting to have. And I wonder if we're open to that. The origin of the word doubt is two. It means two. Um, Two different directions, if you like. You're drawn towards different things at the same time. Maybe you'll think of buying a new bicycle or a new car, a new phone or something, and you waver. Is the seller, is the garage describing the car accurately? Are they being totally honest about the servicing intervals? Are they trustworthy? Maybe they're lying. Maybe they've covered the rust. Maybe they've falsified the stamps in the logbook. Somehow, um, it it won't work when it arrives or or, or the bicycle won't um, function. And you're maybe in two minds about whether or not you should go ahead with the purchase. You might feel unsure. And when it comes to the Christian faith and Christian belief, we sometimes think that this is the way that doubt is approached. When it comes to believing in Jesus and believing in God and all the rest of it, we sometimes think that we're condemned Um, for doubting, that we have this deep sense perhaps that it's sinful or wrong to doubt or to have doubts. And sometimes we can be afraid then to admit that we have doubts. (coughs) Somehow we can consider this to be insincere. Before God, he's shown himself, hasn't he? Well, I've still got doubts. Well, where do I fit in that? And I think many people suppress doubt. They feel guilty about doubt. They feel like they are not right to express it. They don't want to cause other people problems as well, perhaps. And sometimes we realise this is what we were doing because we stopped growing. That's what happens in other areas of life, in your professional development as well. If you stop asking questions about new areas, about new um, things that you need to learn, then you stop growing, you stop progressing. And the same sort of thing can happen in terms of your spiritual um, journey as well. If you stop asking questions, that's when you stop growing. If you push your fears down, then actually those fears can begin to imprison you as well. Um, We can begin to gradually not care. That's one of the things that I notice happening in me when I've been suppressing questions that I've got, is I begin to be disaffected. I begin to not care so much. The news affects me less. I'm less impacted by somebody's story that I really should react to. But perhaps we could see doubts as emails with attachments. Perhaps that's a useful metaphor to put in front of you. Perhaps we need to open an email to look at the attachment to see what is contained in there. I'd like to use the metaphor of that with the illustration of a doctor. What does a doctor do when he begins to look at a case of somebody suffering with something? I think the doctor, if any of you are medically trained, you'll know that you want to very, very carefully diagnose and find out exactly what is causing the symptoms. You want to try to, as accurately as possible, prove or test for what is the thing that is causing the system to become imbalanced or is um, causing it to malfunction. Now, in the same sort of way, I think what we tend to do with doubt is we tend to just say, well, doubt's just one big thing and we just prescribe (coughs) the medicine of just just believe. And I'm not sure that always works. And sometimes I think we need to approach it like a doctor where we diagnose where is this doubt? Where is it coming from? And ask questions about it before we put a case of um, some sort of remedy to it or prescribe a medicine to it. And so... What are the roots of doubt? What does doubt actually look like? And how can you recognise and define the different types of doubt in your life? And then how do we relate all this stuff about Jesus and his incredible claims into that too? So I'm going to try to treat you as individuals for the next few moments. And I think that you each have different components. I think that you each have a will where you make choices. I think I have a will where I chose to come here this evening. 
And I think we also have a mind, which is separate from the will. I think it's where you rationalise things, you process things, you move through a process of reasoning in the mind. And that's separate from the will. And you can choose what you're going to think about, can't you? You can choose what direction you're going to think about things in. And so the mind is, is something that's another part of us. And then also we have emotions. So we have a will, we have a mind, and we have emotions. The way we feel about things, the way we respond naturally and instinctively to things. And I think there are three corresponding different kinds of doubt. Now this is where you're really going to get confused. Hopefully this is clear. But I think there are three corresponding different types of doubt. I think there are doubts of the will. And I think this is where, in, for example, in the book of James in the Bible, we, we see this instruction, don't be like the two-minded man, the man who is double-minded, who's stubborn. Now, the, mess, the, the medicine that the Bible prescribes to this sort of double-mindedness, where we, we choose Jesus one day, we don't choose him the other day, is that actually there's a challenge. The Bible is stronger with this than any other kind of doubt. The Bible challenges us to ask ourselves the question, where are you? What are you really living for? What are you really doing? The Bible doesn't back off from asking us to make a decision in the same way that Jesus didn't back off from asking people to make a decision. As he talked to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, for example, he said, who do you say I am? And he does put it on the line sometimes, doesn't he? He really does ask people to give an answer to that. Perhaps we need to make a decision about whether or not we're going to investigate him more deeply. Perhaps the opportunity to do something like a Christianity Explore course is something we've not yet explored. We've been wavering, and we need to just decide that if there is something to this, then we stand so much to gain, and it could be so wonderful if it were true, and we need to do justice to it and look into it. And I think perhaps at this level, this is what Dostoevsky meant when he said there is a battle between heaven and hell, and that battleground is the hearts of men. I wonder if he was reflecting on how deep down we make these choices, deep in our will, And these choices come to affect our whole lives. So I hope that makes sense. The second type of doubt is a doubt of the mind, where this is rooted in the mind, and the Bible becomes more gentle at this point. Sometimes an explanation begins to help us here. Sometimes we might have a prejudice in the mind, and just simply getting our heads around what's really believed or what's really taught can help to deconstruct that doubt or that question. And I think the Bible says to this, investigate, get a right idea of who God is, heal that broken image of who you think he is, think about things in the right way. God actually invites us in, I think it's in Isaiah, to come and reason with him. Come and reason with him. And if any word could be used to describe the Apostle Paul's early ministry in the book of Acts, he went everywhere and reasoned and persuaded people, appealing to their minds to think about things with him. Yes, challenging the will, but at the same time, working through their questions with them. I think the Bible gives us space here. I think God gives us space to have doubts of the mind, to ask questions. I don't think that Christians should be defensive. I don't feel angry about people asking me tough questions. And I hope you might share some of your questions in the next half an hour or so. I love questions and I find that they help me to grow. Now what gives a Christian that sort of confidence? That's another question, perhaps a good question. But the medicine that the Bible prescribes for doubts of the mind is not just challenge. It's actually study. Look at the evidence. Look at what your worldview is. What's shaping the way that you look at the wheelbarrows and all the other things around you. And we need to be careful that we don't condemn doubts of the mind, which are legitimate and are part of um, how we've been created to function. We need to be careful we don't condemn those and confuse them with doubts of the will. Then thirdly, last type, are doubts of the emotions. And this is where the Bible becomes even more gentle. So the Bible is quite strong. Jesus is quite tough on doubts of the will, where we won't make up our mind. Then he's more gentle when it comes to doubts of of the mind. And then, when it comes to doubts of the emotions, we find Jesus at his most gentle and we find scripture at its most gentle. 
The Bible's actually very gentle. It doesn't condemn this type of doubt. When we read James chapter 1, I read it just a moment ago, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. That man should not think he receives anything from the Lord. We tend to feel that we're being, if we have emotional doubt that this is condemning, this is a really difficult thing to hear. But actually, this is not written to address people with emotional doubt. People with emotional doubt immediately feel very helpless when they hear something like that. They interpret it as meaning that they're expected to pray to God only when they're completely without doubt. How can they ever pray? They doubt and feel condemned. But James was addressing actually doubts of the will in that passage. And I believe that the final verses of the book of Jude actually are much more useful and a, a more useful counterweight to that view of doubt and the challenge to doubt that we see in James. In Jude we read, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Be kind to those who doubt. And that balances the tone from James. And so the medicine that I think that the Bible prescribes to this is Actually, a conversation, maybe even just friendship, maybe confession and maybe just a process of moving through a journey of dealing with and admitting what's down there, what lurks within. Now, obviously, this is a men's night. We don't want to talk too much about all that sort of fuzzy stuff. But you know what I'm getting at, don't you guys? This is this is there's stuff down there. And sometimes we need to admit that it's there and work through a process of just maybe writing about it or figuring out how we're going to deal with that. And we shouldn't confuse that with the other types of doubt. And sometimes we need to permit doubts of the mind and doubts of the emotion to be there. C.S. Lewis, in a letter to a close friend in 1930, wrote this. He said this, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on those arguments that convince me of God's existence. But the irrational deadweight of my old sceptical habits, the spirit of this age and the cares of the day steal away my lively feeling of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. So he's being real about that. And then he goes on to finish and he says, mind you, I, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. See, he's balancing how he feels with what he thinks and what he's chosen. So does Jesus Christ seem like a person who is weak, who is bad in his nature? Is he the sort of person who inspires an ambiguity, a doubt in us? Or, as we reflect on who he is, as we look at who he is, could he be a strategy for finding a way out of doubt, to finding a way to process the different types of doubt that we have? And it's my experience that not only does he provide a challenge to our doubt, but he also provides a way out of it in what he experienced in going to the cross and dying for us. He can come alongside us in what we feel and what we experience and can actually lead us right out of it as we find ourselves in it. So I'm going to um, finish there. Let me invite you to um, think about... um, attending and investigating more and one of the ways you can do that is you could read a book or you could um, check out some articles on websites like bethinking.org or um, you could even um, maybe consider doing a Christianity Explored course is where you come and you're a guest and you come and discuss questions and that might be a good way for you to get a chance to more informally ask your questions and find out more about books that you could read that might be helpful for you as you explore these questions I'm also um, going to be speaking at St. Giles Church this Sunday evening at 6.30. And I'm going to be speaking on the question, why isn't God more obvious? Why isn't God more obvious? And um, I invite you to come if you're free 
um, and uh, uh, hear me there and I'd love to interact with you more and uh, maybe have more opportunity to talk to you afterwards and ask and answer questions. Now, I'm going to stay for as long as you want tonight. If you want to um, sort of pin me against the wall and say what you said was terrible or you want to ask me um, questions about your life and um, questions that you have, then I'd love to hear about those questions too. But what we're going to do now, I think, is going to have a, a time of open questions where we discuss together, where we work at some questions together. And um, I, I, I really invite you to do that and to feel comfortable doing that. I'm, I'm really happy to do that with you. And um, so I'll just give you a couple of moments now. Maybe you could turn to the person sitting next to you and just ask them a question like, you know, what question would you like to ask? Or, you know, can you think of a really hard question to ask Tom? Or what would you, what would you like, to, uh, what would you like to, to drink when we get out of here or something like that? Um, I'll just give you a few moments to do that and then I'll come back and then we'll, um, we'll um, do some um, discussion together. Okay. Thank you for listening. Okay. Who, who, if you're if you're a guest here, I'm particularly glad to hear your questions. But um, who has a question? Please, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, early on in your talk, you were trying to explain miracles as if they were through the laws of nature, but in ways that we don't quite understand. Um, God is surely outside of the laws of nature, so why is it so hard to just say, well, he, he, has, he, has, um, he, he doesn't have to adopt any of the rules of nature? He, can, um, he is totally beyond it. He's beyond our experience of this universe and any other universe. So why, why, we, why do you try and explain miracles as they are within the laws of nature? Well, I'd be perfectly happy to pursue a defence of miracles in that sort of description, in the way that you've just described. I guess part of the issue people would have is that um, if, you, if you have these interventions and in, in suspensions of, of laws of nature, does that have knock-on effects? Does that change the nature of who we are, does it change the nature of the world? Does that undermine the regularities of physics, for example, of the universe? And so there may be knock-on effects to, a, to, that, to that definition as well. I, I only mentioned um, an alternative definition of, definition of miracles to show that Hume's definition um, wasn't necessarily um, the whole picture. He was um, presenting, if you like, a, a weaker version than... The fully, the, the, than a more sort of sophisticated version could be. And I'd be very happy um, to discuss and to enthuse about your definition and seeing God as above and beyond the laws of nature and able to intervene and suspend them. 
we might need to ask questions of how that has knock-on effects in terms of the physics, but um, you can see, I think, what I'm I'm trying to do by Mm. offering an alternative definition. So thank you for the question. Um, Please. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about that. Um, you know, we, we we often might doubt ourselves. You know, at certain times, but um, you know, we don't really know how to handle that. So it makes us feel that we're saying we're wrong in the eyes of God. Um, which is what we were just saying. Um, what sort of tools do you think we could use um, to address that at that time? Because as, as blokes, you know, as, as you said before. You know, we don't open up to people um, and, and so on. You know, so what, what do you suggest? I think having um, having communities like this, and even perhaps probably more s- smaller communities of guys where you can talk as well, is quite helpful. But I think one of the things we need to value is we need to value um, discussion about ideas. Um, and that it's and to make it okay to question and okay to raise ideas. Um, if you take um, the example of um, Genesis and discussions of Genesis, I think sometimes we become polarized in what, 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 we, what we, how we communicate that it must have happened. And I think there's room at the table for lots of different views to be expressed. And I think that there are a number of different views which are entirely and um, happily biblically. Um, that fit the biblical data very well too. So I think we've got to create an environment where it's okay to talk about questions, and particularly smaller communities where it's okay to talk about questions. The field that I work in is called Christian apologetics, and I actually think that that's probably one of the most helpful things to tell you about as well, um, not just because I enjoy it and love it and enthuse about it, but um, if you ask around, you'll find that many guys have been really helped by discovering and getting some apologetics books, some Christian apologetics books, because they begin to probe and deal with some of these difficult questions that sometimes you don't have the space to deal with and address in a, in a, in a, in a, in a church context, which is catering for a wide variety of different people. And I think that um, part of it as well is that as guys, we, we need to take our thinking life seriously as part of, um, if we're Christians, as part of our worship. Um, and that we need to value worshipping God with the mind as we do valuing him, serving him, and, and singing, and all the other different kinds of um, ways of worshipping. And I think that we have fallen on, the, 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 the sort of, the Christian mind has fallen on hard times in some ways, and so having a, a place where that's encouraged, where that's um, developed, where there's a permission for that is, is really quite exciting. My um, story into Christian faith wasn't entirely uh, atheistic. I had some involvement with youth groups and I would ask questions and I had a number of Christian friends growing up Um, and actually my parents became Christians themselves when I was about 12 years old. Um, they, they, They became Christians. Now I was so rebellious and so outrageous that actually that pushed me further away um from anything to do with Christian faith. But I found that when I went to talk to, um, when, I, when I talked to um, my Christian friends about, their, about my questions that I had, I didn't find I always had a permission to ask those questions, and so I pushed them down a little bit. So I think that, you know, that, that did affect my exploring of the subject. Now, when I got to university and I was studying to do philosophy, I suddenly had a permission to 
ask questions. It was okay to ask questions about whether or not God existed and whether or not we could know him, whether or not there was evidence. And, you know, these conversations about miracles started to be opened. And um, this was this was... This was a permission to talk in a way that I hadn't experienced. And I'd had a wide range of different friends, some Christians, some not. And sometimes in our friendships, we can feel like we're getting too heavy if we bring up these questions. And we don't have an appropriate circumstance. And so I'd say um, we need to create spaces where it's okay to question. Um, Maybe sharing articles with each other, sharing books with each other, having um, books that we find helpful. And I would recommend, again, the bethinking.org website as a good place to engage with things. There's also a study centre, which is just down the A3, called Labrie. Um, It comes out of the work of a guy called Francis Schaeffer. If you have never read Francis Schaeffer, then I'd really encourage you to look up Francis Schaeffer and read some of his books. And you'll find that they also are coming from a guy who um, had a crisis in his faith and began to find that nourishing and addressing the questions of the mind were very, very helpful for him as well. And a very, very fruitful um, organisation and um, community came out of that. And they have a base down the A3 towards um, Lys, the other side of Hindhead, and um, the, you can go and stay for the weekend or you can go for a day for a conference or you can go to have evening lectures and it's a very stimulating place to be and there's a permission there to ask questions as well so I think cultivating those sorts of spaces is, 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 is pretty good Yeah. thank you and equally I, well, I suppose as well I spoke mostly there in my answer to the intellectual questions but there are also other types of questions and that's probably more related to what your question was actually about and, and having people, guys that we trust who... who who don't push us where we don't want to be in terms of talking about those things. But having people we can talk to and we can be real with as well um, is, is also quite important in the same sort of way when it comes to other types of doubts. If there are things that we're really struggling with that we, we know actually you know, that we need to work through and some, some um, a process in dealing with stuff down there, then actually I, I, I think that a, a process of, of, of therapy can sometimes be helpful for people as well. So. Thank you. Thanks for the questions. They're two good questions. Great. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. As a philosopher, as you said, you don't get out much, and it is nice to get out occasionally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Does that not contradict your Christianity side that you should be out? Yeah. And do you think that's where the church is failing? There's too many people talking about it and not doing it. I think there's been a historical withdrawal of the church from society, and I, I think that there's <coughs> what you what, the point that you make is is, is a very well made point. Um, what happened was that um, for various different historical reasons, the church circled the wagons, set up their own theological seminaries, withdrew from culture, were nervous about engaging, and even though the church I think had really good answers, um, the church sort of circled the wagons, built a fire in the middle, and sort of huddled around for warmth. And I think that um, it, it, it's, it, it, it is incumbent upon the church when it has the sort of message it has, when it has the sort of um, person at its centre like Jesus who lays down his life for his enemies, who gives himself for people who are on the outside. Um, I think that should suggest to us that the circling the wagon strategy is probably not closest to his heart and his mission and his, his approach. And um, uh, so I, I do try to get out as much as I can. I try to maintain a balance. Um, I, was, uh, uh, I was in Cape Town um, uh, two weeks ago and uh, was involved in four different university outreach campaigns and uh, really had a fun time, uh, the most interesting time. On one campus, one evening, I was on the old Stellenbosch University, which um, was the old university where there was, there was quite a lot of... Um, uh, 
there's quite a lot of um, prejudice on that campus, and it's historically linked with prejudice. Um, and then um, I spoke on there one lunchtime on intolerance and then travelled across the city um, to speak at another campus, which is where actually a lot of the um, student uprisings and the political movement campaigning against apartheid was, um, was launched. And so I, in one day I went from one site to the other site. Now, what was really interesting is that when I started to, as, as we started, to, a team of us started to explain reasons and explained that actually there are there are ways to approach these questions that we don't have to throw away our minds, but actually we can think through these things. And, and maybe there's something to this. And we started to explain our stories in the same sort of way that I tried to explain my story this evening. What we began to see was that people were hungry on both sides. There were people who were responding and people who wanted to know more at Stellenbosch and people who wanted to know more at the um, CPT University as well. Um, and it, 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 was, it was really exciting, and it is really exciting, to be involved with a... Um, uh, 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 I mean, the centre that I teach at is a centre training people to go out and to explain to people outside rather than explain to people inside. And so I might justify some of my, um, uh, my life by um, hoping that I'm setting lots of people off to go out as well. But thank you for your question, and I, yeah, I, I agree with your point. Yes. No, no, thank, thank you, Chris. I'm saying is, as a Christian, don't you think the church will be out there doing more? Not only doing more in terms of presenting a coherent, engaged message um, that makes sense, but also in terms of doing more to address the um, concerns, the equally important concerns of the New Testament in terms of looking after widows and orphans and the poor as well. I think that um, there is room for for growth in both. I think we've been better at the social justice um, side of things, but I think we need to regain our public voice um, as well. And that's part of what I am praying for and hoping for and um, would like to see. That's part of why I think the church needs to be engaged in philosophy and we need to be engaged in, in thinking and addressing and dealing with the hardest objections that we hear, that is possible to hear. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. What would you say to somebody who doesn't have any doubts? <laughs> <laughs> Your whole life seems to be based on mm. people who have doubts. Mm. So, back to the question. Mm. I, I, I would say that um, great for them. I don't want to be down on them. Um, but equally, I think part of the consequence of the fall, of, of, of there being a brokenness in the world, is that we, if we're honest, from time to time wonder about things that happen to us. And I think that I would say that um, it's natural to ask questions. Um, I don't see Jesus as somebody who doubts. Um, I don't think he doubts God. I don't think he doubts his mission. But I think that he's somebody who's real with the emotions and with the experiences that he goes through. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, he says this very interesting thing. He says, my soul is downcast unto death. And which basically means, I'm so depressed I want to top myself. Now, I think, you know, you'd have to, you wouldn't have to work terribly hard to include that in a kind of sort of emotional doubt of some kind, you know, I'm not sure I should be doing this, but his will is set, his mind is set, but there's also, you know, he, it's tough, he's, he's so sad, questions. yes, he's asking questions, exactly, yeah. and so I think, um, 
I, to somebody who said that they, they, they did not experience doubt, I, I think um, I would ask them um, if, they, if they really, really knew themselves, I guess, in part. Um, and I, I would be concerned that they um, might have cauterized or cut off part of their part of who they are in order to just have such a sort of clinical I don't think see that as a terribly I don't know it sort of in some ways is, is feels inhuman do you see what I mean it's sort of it's very hard to function in a way that you just never experience any doubt about anything I think a, a, a finiteness to, to our knowledge is, is just part of the function of being human mm-hmm. and, 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 and maybe some doubts come out of that um, even if they're not fully fledged you know I'm rejecting God kind of doubts yeah I hope you feel that's not too confrontational an answer. Um, yeah. Well, I have doubts about the government and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about dogs. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Please do, yeah, yeah. I, I'll speak quite loudly, sir. Um, if you share your life with um, uh, people who, are, I'm not talking about atheists, but people who um, believe in other religions, and you want to um, show Jesus working in your life and uh, maybe ultimately um, bring them to Christ, do you endorse encouraging doubts in others? And if so, how would you go about it? (laughs) When Paul stands up to speak in Acts 17, um, he um, says, Men of Athens, I see you are very religious. And then he goes on to talk about, I see you have a an altar to an unknown God. He's been studying their religious customs. And so then he says, actually, this unknown God who, who you don't know, I'm going to declare to you, his name is Jesus. And he uses this as a sort of window to explain the Christian gospel through. Now, in doing so, he compounds some of their fears because he begins to describe how this God has made the world and doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And he describes how this God is coming in judgment. And that's that's. That's scary for them because much of their religious um, tradition and their, some of the superstitious, general superstitious religious beliefs of, of Athens at that time were um, based upon the idea that you had to appease the gods with small sacrifices and rituals in order to keep from being judged or being... It was the way you assuaged your fear that you, the gods were going to get you. And so when he started to say, you know, these gods are coming in in judgment, this god is coming in judgment, you're in a serious situation, God's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. He's compounding their fears. He's opening up questions for them in terms of what they know. He's, um, he's, he's sort of identifying their religious ignorance as well and helping them to sort of see, actually, here's, here's the possibility of, 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 of something else. Now, if you take the example of Jesus as well, when he goes around, he asks questions wherever he goes. I think it's T.S. Eliot called him the stranger who asks questions. Beware, O oh my soul, the stranger who knows how to ask questions. And this character of Jesus sort of walks up to people and asks these questions and just sort of explodes their people's worldview in a single question. John 4, um, would you give me a drink? Um, uh, the passage where the young lawyer comes up to him and says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do? And he's, Jesus says, who are you calling good? And so I do think that sometimes... In, in the way that we interact, and I would expect as well that non-Christian friends of mine would ask me questions which would raise questions for my worldview too. And I think that if we, if we, if we don't ask questions which undermine and um, shake the cage of each other's perspectives, then we risk only engaging with each other at a superficial level, giving the appearance that we're really engaging with something 
but actually not really deeply considering and weighing up our views. And it, it's the pretense of a, a discussion rather than actually really talking. And so I'd say that if we're going to be honest with each other, if we're, if we're going to really encounter each other as human beings, then we need to really ask questions about each other's deep beliefs. And part of that may mean raising questions in a respectful, humble way. Perhaps if somebody's going through a really tough time, I wouldn't pick that moment to sort of say, well, do you realise that everything you... You know, I, I think we need to be very sensitive and very careful in the same way that Jesus was very sensitive and Paul was very sensitive and careful. And um, we need to make sure that we do so in a way that's respectful um, and, uh, and, and is gentle with people as well. So, thank you. Thanks for the question. Any others? Okay, well, we're nearly out of time. Thank you so much for your questions and your interaction. Thank you so much for your warm welcome, and it's been lovely to be with you this evening. If any of you would like to informally ask me questions, then I'll stick around for as long as you want to, and, uh, uh, and keep feeding me coffee, and I'll keep chatting. Thanks very much, Tom.